Uh, good morning and welcome to Veritas Church. My name is Ryan. Uh, I serve here as one of the pastors. Uh, I want to let you know uh, we're really, really glad that you're here this morning. Uh, if you've got your Bible, uh, go ahead and make your way to Genesis chapter 44. Uh, if you're new with us and you don't have a Bible, um, we've got one for you. On that table over there, there's some black hardback ones, uh, and you can go grab one of those and keep that. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. But uh, really, over the past year, we have been walking through a series uh, looking at the book of Genesis, and lately we've been in the life of Joseph. We're actually about to come to the end uh, of this series in the book of Genesis, but uh, looking at the life of Joseph, and Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was taken to Egypt, but over the past few weeks we've seen uh, Joseph rise up to second-in-command, the ruler of all of Egypt under Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and uh, his brothers. There was a famine that uh, affected really the entire known world at that time. And so his brothers came from their land to Egypt to get food to eat during this famine and ran into Joseph. And they didn't recognize him, but Joseph recognized them. And so over the past few chapters, Joseph has been putting them through some tests uh, to see if they've changed it all over the past 20 years or if they're still the same selfish brothers that sold him into slavery. And so uh, the first test, he took one of the brothers, kept him captive, uh, and made all the other ones go back and bring his youngest brother, Benjamin, back uh, to Egypt to see him. And so uh, we saw last week that they did this, and they were invited to Joseph's house to have a meal. And uh, he gave Benjamin five times as much food as the rest of the brothers. He favorited him uh, to see if this would provoke the brothers' jealousy and cause them to act harshly like they did uh, with Joseph all those years ago. And now today in Genesis 44, we're coming to this final test. And so let's look at it together. Genesis 44, we'll start in verse 1. And so starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today, it speaks to us like this. It says, Then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? 
Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And so when we ended last week with chapter 43, at the end of chapter 43, the the brothers have just had a meal with Joseph, and they ended up kind of getting drunk and happy together uh, with Joseph. And I, I imagine the next morning, as they're still sleeping off their alcohol, Joseph has his steward put their money back in their sacks and put the silver cup, uh, his silver cup, in Benjamin's sack uh, so that it will be found there. He's setting them up for this final test. And so uh, they wake up and they begin their journey back home to their father. And Joseph tells his servant uh, to do this, to go and catch up to them and to say, like, Why did you steal my master's silver cup? Do you not know that he can practice divination, like hearing messages from the gods? Did you really think he wasn't going to figure this out? And so the servant goes and does this, and the brothers are like, what are you talking about? That's absolutely crazy. We brought back the money that you thought we stole the first time, and we offered to pay double for all of this food. Why would we bring that money back and, and that we, you think we've stolen from you just to steal again? This is ridiculous. We don't have it, and, and we're so sure that we don't have it that whoever does have it, if it's found with him, uh, you can put him to death, and the rest of us will be your slaves. And so the steward does this. He begins to search through their sacks, beginning from the oldest and going down to the youngest. And I imagine as he uh, opens up each brother's sack and the cup is not found in there, they're probably getting a little bit more bold and trash-talking as he goes, like, this is ridiculous. Why are you wasting our time? We told you that we don't have it. You're not going to find it in there until, uh, to their shock and horror, that last sack is opened up and the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. And and so they go back to Joseph's house, and Joseph confronts them and really says the same thing. He says, don't you know I can practice divination? Did you really think I wasn't going to figure this out? Now, I'll I'll just say, I think Joseph is kind of putting on the ruse here, still acting like an Egyptian uh, because of how often in this story he's attributed uh, things that have happened to him and his ability to interpret dreams to God, uh, but he has to do this to keep this test going. And so he says this, and then Judah steps forward and he says, listen, you're right, we're in the wrong. God has found out our guilt and all of us will serve you. We will be your servants. But Joseph says, no, that's not how we're going to do it. Only the one that had the cup, just the one that stole from me is going to be my servant and the rest of you can go home in peace to your father. Now, do you see what Joseph is doing? For the last time, he is putting his brothers in the exact same situation they were in 22 years ago. Just like back then, they can sell a brother, they can leave a brother in slavery, take the money, and go home scot-free, like with no punishment. I, I mean, their father Jacob has already told them that if he loses Benjamin, he loses him. 
And, and so all they have to say is, okay, Dad, uh, Benjamin stole the divining cup of the most powerful man in Egypt, and he said because of that, Benjamin had to be his slave. He forced us to go back home to you. There was nothing we could do. Dad, I'm sorry we lost him, but, but that's what he chose to do. And, and look, this time, uh, it's even more clear kind of to, to all they know It's actually Benjamin's fault, right? He actually deserves this. He chose to steal uh, from this man and take his cup. And so they easily could just leave him there in slavery, take the money and go home and get off scot-free. But that's not what Judah does. Look at what Judah steps forward and says in verse 18. It says, And Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to shield. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father." saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father." So Judah steps forward and gives really this beautiful speech. It's the longest one in Genesis. And he basically tells Joseph, like, please, you cannot do this. It will kill my father. He loves Benjamin so much, and he cannot bear to see another one of his favorite sons taken from him. I know that he stole from you. I know he did what is wrong. But please let me stand in his place and be your servant so that he can go free. I will pay the cost of his sin. I will bear the punishment. I will be your servant. Just please let Benjamin go free. Man, do you notice the way that Judah has been completely transformed as we walked through this story? 
I mean, think about this. This is a man who led the charge 20 years ago to sell his brother Joseph into slavery uh, to make a quick buck. Then he spent decades lying about it to his father, saying that a wild animal killed him. He raised two wicked sons that God had to put to death because of their wickedness, and then he refused to provide for his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He then impregnated her, slept with her, uh, thinking that she was a roadside prostitute. Uh, His whole life up to this point has been characterized by selfishness, but ever since Tamar exposed him and confronted him in his sin, his life has been on a completely different trajectory. Like, yes, his father still favorites Benjamin and not him, but last chapter we saw that he offered to be a pledge of safety for Benjamin because he loves his father. And now here in chapter 44, he's taking it one step further and offering to pay the price and be the servant for a crime that he himself did not commit because he so loves his father. He's been completely transformed. His life has moved from one of selfishness to selflessness. And look, we know that Judah has been transformed because what we see here in Genesis 44 and then really all throughout the rest of the Bible is the reality that all true love is substitutionary sacrifice, like what Judah does here. All true love is you substituting of yourself, sacrificing your time, your energy, your wants, yourself so that others can be built up and flourish. I think one of the best definitions for love I've ever heard is that love is your good at my cost. And so an act of love is what benefits you, what serves you, and what costs me, what makes me sacrifice and serve and lay my life down for your good so that you might flourish. Uh, Love looks like what Judah does here because this is really the question that we're going to be confronted with and the decision we have to make really all day, every day. Like, will we choose selfishness or will we sacrifice? Will we serve? I mean, even in small things, things like the diaper has to get changed, uh, are you going to do it or are you going to make your spouse do it? The the dishes have to be done. They can only pile up so high. uh, So are you going to do it or are you going to make somebody else in the house do it? Love is saying, I'll pay the cost. I'll bear the burden. I will do it so that you don't have to worry about it. Uh, I think one of the scariest realizations for me uh, when I got married, and uh, like uh, one of the, when I got married was uh, now I, I had all these really clear kind of tangible opportunities to serve, and uh, it's not like I didn't have those before. I, I just wasn't aware of those. So sorry, mom and dad. Uh, But now I had all of these really clear, tangible opportunities to serve, uh, and it really scared me, and it still scares me how quick my thoughts will, when I see a need, my thoughts will run to like, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. Like, I'm too tired. I don't really feel like it. Uh, She can do it. Like, I, I can tell you that so many of the struggles that we've had in our marriage have happened because to my shame, so often... I love my own comfort more than I love my wife. I love to be served, and I hate to serve. I can tell you that so much of the friction in our relationships and our friendships happen because, honestly, we really think love is my good at your cost. Like, I want you to serve me, but I'm not going to serve you. 
I'm not going to lay down any of my comfort or any of my preferences. I'm not even going to stop talking about myself and redirecting the conversation back to myself long enough to hear what you have to say. I'm not going to bend to you. You're going to have to bend to me if this relationship and friendship is going to work. But, but Judah's example here is showing us something different, showing us what real love looks like. It looks like saying, stepping up and saying, I will pay the cost. I will bear the burden. I will take care of it so that you don't have to. And, and Joseph sees this. He sees that Judah has been transformed into a, a person who loves and who is selfless. Uh, he sees that when Ju- Judah is put in the exact same position that he was put in, uh, this time he doesn't give up his brother again. Instead, he offers to give himself up for his brother, and it absolutely breaks Joseph. Look at what he does in verse 1 of chapter 45. It says, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And so Joseph, he can't keep up the test anymore. He breaks and he begins to weep. And he says, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. Is dad still alive? And the text tells us that the brothers are dismayed at this. This word's translated in other places in the Bible as terrified. They're, They're terrified when Joseph reveals himself to them. Why? Well, when was the last time that they saw Joseph? When they were selling him into slavery. Right? And I'm sure over these past two decades, they thought that Joseph was dead. But Joseph is not dead. He's very much alive. And not only is he alive, he's now the second, kind of the vice president and ruler of all of Egypt. 
All the authority of Egypt is at Joseph's disposal. And so how easily could he have revealed himself and said, guess what? My name is Joseph. You sold me into slavery. Prepare to die. Or I am Joseph, and you guys are dead men. I I am Joseph. Now you guys get to figure out what slavery is like. And Joseph easily could have used his great power uh, to pay his brothers back for what they did to him, but that's not what he does, is it? No, instead he says, I'm Joseph, I'm your brother, please come near to me. Don't be scared, don't be angry at yourselves for what you did to me, because yes, what you did to me was evil, but God is much bigger than you guys and had much bigger purposes. Uh, He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. He says this three times. Verse 5, he says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Notice how Joseph puts uh, the sufferings that his brothers inflicted on him into the bigger context of what God was doing through it. Like, yes, what the brothers did to him was evil, but God is so much bigger than them and is able to use it for his good purposes. Because in the plan of God, his brothers selling him into slavery is actually the thing that kept them alive when this famine hit. God brought Joseph to the palace so that God could preserve, use Joseph to preserve life, both the life of his family and the life of the Egyptians and the life of all the known world that was coming to Egypt and coming to Joseph for food. And because Joseph can see clearly that this is what God was doing in his story, he's able to forgive his brothers and to seek to reconcile with them. Now, remember, a few weeks ago, I told you we're not always going to get to interpret God's providence in our lives uh, in the same definitive way that Joseph does here, where we can clearly be able to say, yeah, this is exactly what God was doing in my life and in my story. Uh, So often, it's not going to be as clear what God is doing through the difficult circumstances and the sufferings that come upon us. Uh, So often it won't be as clear, but Joseph's story here is serving as a prophetic witness to us to stir us up to hope in God. It it is this clear in Joseph's story that what God, what the brothers meant for evil, God meant for good, so that when it isn't as clear in our stories, we can still know and trust beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is good and he will use it for our good, that this is the way that God works, that this is what he will do. He will keep this promise to us because he loves us. And so we see that, but there's, there's something else in this story that I want you to see. Uh, to paraphrase another pastor, something we're seeing very on in the Bible, very early on here, Uh, is that substitution is at the heart of forgiveness and reconciliation. That the way that God is ultimately going to accomplish forgiveness and reconciliation is through a substitutionary sacrifice. In the next book of the Bible, Exodus, uh, the Israelites become enslaved to the Egyptians, and the way that God ultimately delivers them is through the Passover lamb. 
uh, uh, the Passover lamb that would die in the place of the firstborn son of all of these families. These families would uh, sacrifice this Passover lamb and spread its blood on the doorpost of their house so that when the destroying angel passed through the land of Egypt and saw the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, uh, the firstborn son, his life, would be spared. And, And so the way God forgives them and delivers them and sets them free is through this sacrificial lamb, this substitute that died in place of the firstborn son. After this, God institutes the sacrificial system, and the high point of the sacrificial system is the Day of Atonement ceremony in Leviticus chapter 16. And so what would happen every year at the Day of Atonement is that all Israel would gather together at the tabernacle, and the high priest would have two goats. And so he would take the first goat, and he would sacrifice the goat. He would drain its blood into a bowl, and then he would take that blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing that it was a sin offering for the people, that it was dying to pay the price for their sins. And so he would do that. He would get finished with that. Then he would come back out, and he would get that second goat, and he would lay his hands on the head of the second goat, and he would confess all the sins of the people of Israel, name them one by one by one, one after another, symbolizing that the sins of the people of Israel were being transferred onto this goat as their substitute. So he would name off all of the sins of the people, and then he would finish Uh, And then another man would take this goat and and lead it out into the desert and then release it into the desert, never to be seen by the people of Israel again, symbolizing that this is what God was doing with their sin. But the problem with this is that it didn't fully and finally deal with the people's sin because they had to come back and do this every year all over again. The blood of bulls and goats is never going to be enough to pay for human sin. It's never going to be the substitute that accomplished forgiveness and reconciliation because uh, we need somebody to come and relive our lives in perfection, wholeheartedly obedient to God, undoing the sin of Adam. And then we need somebody to come and lay that perfect life down as a substitute in our place for us if we're going to be forgiven. Well, in Isaiah 53, we get a prophecy of a man who would come and who would do just that. This man would come and he would be like the Passover lamb. He would be like those goats on the Day of Atonement. It says that he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our sins, that the punishment that will bring us peace will be put on him, that the Lord will lay our sins on him, and by his wounds we will be healed. The whole Bible is building towards this final and great sacrifice, and Judah's example of substitution here gives us really one of the clearest pictures of this sacrifice, of the heart of the gospel and what it looks like here. Because Judah's offer here, it points forward to another son who will come and who will offer himself up out of love for his father. You see, God the Father so loved us and wanted to adopt us as his daughters and his sons that he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus came, and this is what he did. He saw us in our sin, and just like Judah, he said, I will take the blame. I will bear the cost. I will pay the punishment so that they can go free. Put it on me. I will pay for it. And he did. 
Judas simply offered to give up his life and be a servant, but Jesus actually became a servant. He actually became a man and gave his life up all the way to death. This is the good news of the gospel, the great exchange. We had all enslaved ourselves to sin and death, so Jesus came and became a servant and was obedient all the way to death and died to set us free. You see, Jesus came and stood in our place and took what we deserve so that forever we could stand in his place with him and get what he deserves. John Stott puts it like this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself and puts himself where only God deserves to be. So God sacrifices himself and puts himself where only man deserves to be. You see, because Jesus died and took the condemnation for our sins, we don't and we won't. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus in my place. He came and lived the perfect life that I have not lived for me. Then he went to the cross and died the death for my sin that I deserved to die. And then he rose from the dead to defeat death and sin forever so that I could be forgiven his righteousness, so that I could be forgiven and set free. And it's just incredible news. But it's not just Judah that points forward to Jesus in this story. Joseph's example does as well. You see, because just like Joseph, Jesus was thrown into a pit by his brothers, but God did not leave him in the pit. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand and gave him all authority. All authority, not just in Egypt, in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And when Jesus is raised up from the dead and given all authority, he, he does not use that great power to pay us back for sinning against him. Instead, he fully, freely, and forever forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And as glorious as that is, it gets even better. Because Jesus does not just simply forgive our sins. Being forgiven being counted not guilty and righteous in God's courtroom uh, is a great thing, but you realize you can still be forgiven and not have a relationship, right? I, I mean, imagine you're an orphan and uh, you steal something and somebody takes you to court for that. And, and imagine that the judge rules in your favor. They declare you not guilty uh, and they forgive you of your offense and you're able to be forgiven and go free. Well, if that happens to you, at the end of the day, what are you still? An orphan, right? You're forgiven, yes, but you're still an orphan. But the good news of the gospel is that God does not simply forgive us and count us righteous. It's as if he takes off the judge's robe and also reconciles us and adopts us into his family. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he makes us daughters and sons of God. He makes us his brothers and his sisters so that forever we could be welcomed in, so that we could draw near to God, so that we could come close, so that we who have never done anything in our lives to deserve it could have a place in the family of God. 
Man, and I know, I know, just like Joseph's brothers were pretty apprehensive at first that Joseph was really going to use his power to forgive them instead of harm them and treat them harshly. I know every other example in our world tells us that the offer of the gospel is just too good to be true. That forgiveness and reconciliation with God, surely it cannot be this easy. That there's no way he could really love us and treat us like this. Like, surely there has to be a catch. It is so hard to believe that that when we put our trust in Jesus, we are fully, freely, and forever forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and reconciled to God like the gospel tells us when we've sinned so deeply and so often against God. but, But just like Joseph, who had all the power of Egypt at his disposal and chose to forgive and reconcile with his brothers instead of harm them, why would Jesus go to the length of becoming a man and dying for you just to forgive some of your sin? Why, why would he do that just to leave you as an orphan outside of the family of God? Why would he go to that length for you just to, in the end, be harsh towards you? He won't. He won't. We can know that we truly are forgiven and welcomed and reconciled back to God. We can know that God is not going to abandon us or change his mind about us. This is why when guilt and shame crop back up in your life, you've got to take them back to the cross and preach the gospel to yourself. You preach to yourself the truth and the good news that if God the Father has already given up his son for me, if Jesus has freely chosen to come and substitute himself and sacrifice his life for me, And then I know that I truly am forgiven and set free of all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my shame, forever. It's a certainty. I'm as secure of a daughter or a son of God as Jesus is. And so this story gives us a beautiful picture of the gospel and what God does to save us and bring us into his family but, but not only does it do that, I think Judah's example here also gives us the pattern for what growth in the Christian life looks like. You see, because all true love is substitutionary sacrifice as seen most clearly in Jesus, uh, as the gospel does its work in our lives, then our lives are going to increasingly be characterized by this sort of sacrificial love. I mean, even before he went to the cross, Jesus modeled sacrificial love to his disciples by washing his disciples' feet, a task that was reserved only for the lowest of slaves. And after he was done washing his disciples' feet, he said that uh, we are not greater than him, that he was leaving an example for us. And if he saw fit as the king of the universe to humble himself and wash the feet of his disciples and serve in this way... And how much more should we walk in it as well? And so do you, do you want to know if you're growing as a follower of Jesus? Do you want to know if you're growing in the Christian life? I think the question you've got to answer is, is your life increasingly characterized by this sort of sacrificial love towards others? Like, yeah, theology is important, But but the Christian life is really not just about growing in theological knowledge. It's about growing deeper in love. The question to answer is not, do I know more facts, but am I walking deeper in love? In in both big things and small things. Things like, I'll do the dishes so that you don't have to. 
I will stay up and sit with you and lose sleep so that you don't have to process this alone. I will make the meal. I will bring you the meal so that you guys don't have one more thing to worry about while you're grieving or, or processing or adjusting. I will inconvenience myself of my time, my schedule, my comforts, my wants and desires, myself, so that you can be built up, so that you can flourish, so that you can be served. You see, because Jesus freely sacrificed himself for me and served me even when I didn't deserve it, I want to sacrifice and serve for you so that you be met with the love of Jesus as well. This is what my life is about now that Jesus has saved me. Husbands, this is the pattern that, that Jesus lays out for us in, in the ways as to how we're to relate to our wives. When, when the Bible talks about what it means for you to be the head of your wife, it never defines that in terms of you have the power and authority, you get to call the shots, you get to make the decisions, you get to set the rules. No. No, in fact, the Bible never explicitly commands you to lead your wife, but it does explicitly command you to love your wife like this. Like Jesus, who loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her so that the church might flourish. And so if you want to better lead your wife, the way to do it is like this, by being the first to serve, by being the first to sacrifice, by being the first to die to yourself and your comforts and your preferences, by being the first to ask, how can I privilege her good above my own so that she might be served? And for all of us, do you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus? Do you want to build up the church? Well, I think the simplest way to do that is to start looking for ways to sacrifice and to serve like this, to meet needs here of others in the church, in everything, like in how you schedule your time, in how you structure your schedule, in how you spend your money, in what you say yes and no to. Uh, in how you view others here in the church. Because once again, the, the way to really answer the question, are we growing together as a church, is really not, are, are we getting more people in the seats? It's, are, is our, are our relationships with each other increasingly characterized by this? Do, are our lives increasingly marked by a growing and deepening love for God and love for one another? Because this is what our lives are about now that Jesus has saved us. And so the, the gospel, what Jesus has done, it lays out the pattern for our Christian life, but it doesn't just give us the pattern, it also gives us the power. To, to love others selflessly and sacrificially like this is an incredibly hard standard, and if you just try to do it in your own strength, you're going to fall back into patterns of privileging your own comfort and selfishness and serving yourself. It's what we all default back to. We have to be getting our eyes on the beauty of Jesus in the gospel, that he did this for us, that he loved us first, that he became the true Judah, that he served us because the more we're just overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus would love me and serve me in this way when I did not deserve it, the more we're increasingly going to find the strength to serve others uh, so that they might see the love of Jesus as well. The more we're increasingly going to want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to others. This is what our lives are about now that Jesus has saved us. The gospel is the pattern and the gospel is the power. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this good news. 
that we who in this room had freely chosen to enslave ourselves to our sin, had freely chosen to try to find life outside of you, and who absolutely deserved to be left in that condition. Jesus, you did not seek your own good. You sought ours. You humbled yourself. You took on flesh. You became obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, thank you that you are the true Judah, that you stood in our place, that you paid the debt, that you accomplished salvation so that we could go free. Thank you that our lives have been redeemed by what you've done, and that like Joseph, you don't hold us at arm's length, you don't wait for us to clean ourselves up, you welcome us, and you tell us to draw near and to come close. Jesus, thank you for just the magnificent grace that you put on display in in this passage. And I pray that in light of that grace that we would walk in this as a church. I pray that a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, that we would be able to look back and say, yes, by the grace of God, we really are growing in this as a church. Our, Our lives are increasingly marked by selflessness and sacrifice and sacrificial service of one another. God, help us don't just want to preach about this. We want to walk in this. We want to live this. We want our lives to be shaped by the gospel and by the way that you first served us. Jesus, would you see fit in your grace to do that in and among us as a people? I pray that you would in your name. Amen.